a podcast of the OI. Welcome back to the OI. I'm your host, Steve Townsend. Last week, we were in an office at the Oriental Institute, and this week we are in room 212, having a talk with Tasha Voderstrasse again. This week, we'll be investigating the Scythians and the Dothraki. George R. R. Martin often draws from history. In his first novel, Dying of the Light, he said it in a uh, parallel version of the World's Fair of 1893, only in space. His second novel, Fever Dream, was a novel about steamboating on the Mississippi with vampires. And then, of course, Game of Thrones is a mix-up of the War of the Roses. It draws on uh, sieges at Constantinople with chains across the harbor and Greek fire. And he also involves a a number of horseback-riding nomads, which we're going to talk about this week, the Dothraki. So, Tasha, George R. R. Martin's drawing from history with the Dothraki. What sources is he drawing from, do you think? Of course, in the case of the Dothraki, who, as we know, play a major role uh, in both the books and the series, it's clear that George R. R. Martin has been looking at mounted nomadic warriors of Eurasia. So whether that's the Scythians, who we'll be talking about more today, or the Huns or the Mongols, these really terrifying warriors on horseback who come into the civilized world, as it were. I mean, obviously, you can argue that these people are also civilized. But of course, we're portraying them in a very negative light as barbarians. So they're not settled. They don't live in cities. They're not permanent. And because they're not permanent and they're tied to their horses, which are sort of the overarching thing that you can see that is so important to their ability to just show up, burn the village, kill everyone, or take them off into captivity, take all the loot, and then basically vanish into thin air almost. So you can see how he's looked at these stories behind these various sort of extremely terrifying nomadic groups and then reimagined it by taking bits and pieces probably from different things as well as, of course, his own imagination, and he creates the Dothraki. Let's talk a little bit more about these Scythians. I I come across them a lot in in reading about the ancient Near East. One of the things I want to know specifically is did they really drink from skulls? So it's funny. The drinking from skulls trope is something that shows up over and over again. One of the problems that we have with a lot of these groups is many of them didn't have a written language, or they didn't initially anyway. They may have developed one later, like the Mongols, who end up having a language that they write down. The Scythians don't have a written language, so we don't actually know what entirely they were doing. Mostly what we know about them comes from other people describing them, like Herodotus, most famously, uh, who, of course, we also talked about last week, who again is trying, just as with Semiramis and Nitocris, trying to portray these individuals as sort of these exotic other. So Herodotus's stories about the Scythians are incredibly influential and detailed, and people have taken them, because we don't have anything else, to be true when we're looking at, say, for example, the rituals of when the Scythian king dies. And so that means really that we have to rely on him and other accounts, as well as the archaeology of the Scythians, so whatever happens to have been found, uh, and there's been some fantastically preserved material, thanks to the permafrost, for example, which has meant that we have a lot of organic material, and also, because the Scythians loved gold, seemingly, we have lots of that. So we do have an idea about like elite goods and things like this, but 
what they always necessarily were doing all the time, it's really hard to say. I, I also read that the Scythians were the type of nomads that would rather burn their own land than let a foreign enemy come and conquer it. This is something which is coming from, in this case, the Achaemenid sources. And so the Achaemenids saw the Scythians as their enemy. They were not fond of them. Um, they referred to them as the Saka. And there are different groups of them, including the pointy-hatted Saka, my personal favorite. And they depict them on Persepolis, on the reliefs, uh, for instance, bringing tribute, this kind of thing. Did they really do that? We don't know. I mean, obviously, again, the Achaemenids are trying to justify, you know, we're better than they are. They're doing this or that. And so, yeah, it's potentially true. And we don't have anything to say that it's not, but we don't have any evidence to say in terms of the archaeology, to say, yes, this, this for sure happened. Horses were a big part of Dothraki culture. They're, they're, they're part of the religion. They're part of their culture. Everything about the Dothraki revolves around the horse. Uh, is that in any way similar to the Scythians? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's clear, it's very clear, from both the archaeology and from the written sources from Herodotus, for instance, the horse is all, basically. I mean, this is how they get around. This is... Um, clearly how they're able to control such a huge area because we shouldn't forget the Scythians basically from 900 BC to 200 BC they are basically sweeping out of Eurasia and coming into contact with the ancient Near East and so this is a group of people who you can find everywhere from southern Siberia to the Black Sea and this is a massive group of people now they're not obviously unified under one person we don't have a Khal Drogo uh, for example at least not as far as we know but this was a group of very mobile people and how were they able to be mobile by their horses. And we know from what Herodotus says, for example, that these are incredibly skilled horsemen. They shoot bows and arrows from their on horseback, so mounted warfare. They're considered, you know, maybe the sort of originators of mounted warfare and how effective that can be. Things like horse armor and, you know, all these kinds of things potentially is coming out of the warfare that they are committing against other people. That description that you, that you make of them riding around on the horses and, and making war paints a really vivid picture. We, we have Martin's description of the Dothraki in the books, and we have what the show has given us uh, of the Dothraki. We, we know they wear their hair really long in braids, and we know that a Dothraki only cuts his hair when uh, he is defeated. And so we, we have a good idea of, of these long-haired uh, warriors. What do we know about uh, what the Scythians look like? I mean, that you've painted a great picture of them riding around, but do we have any idea of what like what they physically looked like or what kind of jewelry they might have worn or what kind of cosmetics or whatever they might have put on their skin? Yeah, so one, one place where they're actually quite similar to the Dothraki, the Dothraki are the ones wearing trousers in Game of Thrones. And the Scythians also, we know from depictions of them uh, in the art, wore trousers. Now, the Dothraki, of course, uh, perhaps for the benefit of the viewer, uh, you know, they're obviously, you know, not wearing a lot on top, which, of course, gives us the opportunity to admire Khal Drogo, for example. Now, obviously, the Scythians are on a step. Step's really cold. It's not going to work. We know that they were wearing a lot more clothing. At least that's, that's the evidence that we have. Um, we also know that they tattooed themselves. So we have, um, thanks to the fantastic preservation of some of the tombs, uh, we have tattooed people. We also know that they had wore their hair 
Well, we don't know exactly how long it was, but we do know, thanks to Herodotus, assuming we believe him, and of course he is considered not only the father of history, but the father of lies, so... Eh. But according to him, when you have the funeral of the uh, Scythian king, the men cut their hair short. This does imply that your hair is a certain length, potentially braids, maybe, but, you know, not clear. Uh, we also know they, they uh, are also busy cutting off ears or parts of ears and things like this and lacerating themselves in a very, mm, you know, this is obviously shown by Herodotus to show that the Scythians are very primal, very, very sort of barbaric because, you know, when somebody dies, they do lots of crazy stuff. You know, again, we're not sure this is true, but it does seem to suggest, again, certain amount of, of similarity. Um, and you could see a situation where length of hair and cutting that does seem to signify something, just like it does among the Dothraki. So uh, do we know anything about what kind of jewelry they might have worn? Yeah. So one thing with the Scythians that we do know um, is they had access to uh, a lot of gold. In the excavations of a lot of the burials, so this is not just in the Black Sea, but also, uh, for example, in uh, Central Asia and Southern Siberia, uh, we have a huge amount of sort of gold material that that's coming up so it's clear that probably they wore at least on you know ceremonial occasions quite a bit of jewelry probably you know these are very mobile people so it's a question of you know how that would have worked precisely but yeah when when you look uh they have a lot of sort of plaques uh, and things like this, which could potentially be sewn onto clothing, uh, for example, makes a certain amount of sense because obviously if you're mobile and you have all these gold bits, you know, you might want to sew it on and that could show, you know, be quite striking from a distance and also show how, how uh, wealthy you were, in fact. And if you look uh, at some of these gold plaques that get found, uh, for instance, uh, you can see holes where they clearly could have sewn them onto things that people were wearing. Daenerys becomes Khaleesi of the Dothraki, ends up ruling over them. Do we have any examples of uh, women, of what women were doing in the Scythian culture? The Scythians we know had female warriors. So unlike the Dothraki, who don't seem to have women warriors other than Daenerys, this seems to be an exception. Basically, they had female warriors who were found buried in uh, burials, dressed basically for warfare. Uh, there's some idea that the Scythians are the inspiration for the Amazons. So this whole idea of female warriors seems to have been something that the Scythians did do. In A Game of Thrones, Daenerys eats a horse heart as a part of a ritual. What kind of horse rituals might the Scythians have had? Anything similar to this? Yeah, so perhaps not surprisingly, given the fact that horses are so central to the Scythians, just as they are to the Dothraki, horses do seem to play a very important ritual effect in uh, Scythian life. Uh, and we've actually know from excavations that horses were sacrificed in presumably funerary rituals. And so there's been studies which have basically shown that the horses in general face eastward. So their heads are facing in a particular direction. So there does seem to be a certain ritual thing. Although part of the problem is, as you might imagine, when you sacrifice a bunch of horses, you got to figure out where to put them. So sometimes you have to sacrifice the direction the horse's head goes. Um, but in general, they face the same way. Uh, the ages tend to be different. So we're still not sure exactly what's going on. Uh, but it does seem in some instances that people are sacrificing the dead person's beloved animals because they're older 
In other cases, we actually have it so that the animals are younger. It's not entirely clear what's happening exactly, so it doesn't seem to be the same everywhere in all instances, potentially. Um, and also what's interesting is because of the permafrost, the horses are really well preserved. So you get skin, hair, yeah, exactly, smelly, precisely. Not real fun to excavate, I gather, and also very difficult, in fact, to tell which horse is which because they've all kind of melded together in this big pile of, you know, rotting goo. So so, uh, you know, it's, 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 but despite all of those problems, um, as people do more and more excavating, they realize that, you know, how central the horse really was. And it's evident that just like with the Dothraki, the horses, you know, we don't know if people were eating them, but in that, in the same way, um, but in any case, they're certainly sacrificing them for important occasions, such as the death of various important individuals. Speaking of excavations, What's the OI doing in terms of Scythian research? Do we have any Scythian artifacts? Are there any Scythian excavations that are being done? So we don't currently, although that would be very interesting. But what we do have is um, because the Scythians are coming into close contact with the Near East, we actually see the adaptation of and trade with the Near East. So for example, Achaemenid Persian material uh, seems to show up in Scythian contexts uh, or very Accommented influenced material. Well, thank you, Tasha, for your time and your knowledge. Join us next time as we venture into another room and another conversation at the OI. You love a good story. At the OI, we have one of the best. Become a member and join the conversation. For more information, visit oi.uchicago.edu/member.